Hey guys, and welcome back to the Female Fitness Formula Podcast. I am your host, as always, Sheridan Sky, but I have a super special guest with me here today who I had wanted on the podcast for a really long time. So we know her as Izzy Smith, aka Isabel Smith, and she is honestly one of the leaders that I respect so much in the industry because of her evidence-based approach to, you know, women's health and particularly the, the the female athlete as well. So she is a medical doctor and she specializes in endocrinology, soon to be an endocrinologist next year. If you if you pass, do you have to do some do you have to do some tests, Izzy? I just I just have to get my research project done. That is what is holding me back right now. So I spend I spend too much time, you know, making educational content for people online and don't work on my own stuff. But yeah, that's the main barrier at the moment. Yeah, awesome. And you're also uh, one of the, I guess, lending experts in FEMI, right? Which is the 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 female run club. But they also have this really great course, which I've I've personally done myself, and I recommend it to all coaches who are wanting to upskill in you know women's health uh, and it's called uh, Femi Theory is that right? Yeah Femi Theory so we have a, a coaching platform which is coaching our athletes to their menstrual cycle and then we have the educational platform and then soon to be a app which is a coaching app but we're all runners ourselves so it's kind of quite running focused but yeah education for all female athletes. Yes well thank you so much for your time I know that you are a very busy woman and a you know what a lot of people maybe don't know about you is is that you do work in the public health system are you still in public health yeah so i have taken as you said i'm not completely qualified yet i took an extra registrar year and i am looking after an inpatient eating disorder service which is fascinating and draining um but it was really good experience especially working in this athlete space which unfortunately sometimes there is some crossover with eating disorders so i'm upskilling with my final ever full-time public hospital job and i'm very excited to just do part-time private practice next year but yeah i work full-time in the public system at the moment yeah i want to i want to touch on that right so let's let's talk about that Izzy has like obviously you went through medical school, which is like what six years, five years for me, five years. Okay, then you went into your internship, you did your residency, you've done your specialties, which is an accumulation of how many years? No. So nine? nine years. Nine years. Okay, so you literally just said, "I am not yet qualified. Next year I'll be qualified," and you have lived and breathed this and probably spent a lot of money in um, tertiary fees and all of the things and a lot of blood, sweat and tears in all of your exams and all these things. And yet nine years later, you are almost there, but you still can't quite say that I am qualified to talk about hormones and endocrinology, yet we have people who have done weekend courses who are experts in Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, Sheridan, even then next year, I'm not going to say I'm an authority on a field. I'll be a junior consultant. You know, in 20 years' time when I have heaps more publications under my belt and a lot more experience, then I'll really call myself an expert and an authority in the field. So, yeah, it's it's a long path my entire adult life has been dedicated to medicine and I know you've got the nursing background so you see what we go through there is so much study and courses 
and a lot of money as well, you know, that goes into that training. So thank you for recognizing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, and it's, it's why I honestly wanted you on here, uh, Izzy, because it's, you know, I had my nursing background being in critical care. So I worked very closely with the endocrinologists and the specialists there and, and obviously the doctors. But then now what I primarily do is, you know, coaching and I work with women in that space and being a nutritionist. And I see how much the word hormones are thrown around and I have a lot of questions around hormones and it's, for me, I really wanted to have a chat with you about, um, I could honestly ask you about a million and one things, but today I really wanted to focus on one particular thing, which is contraception. And I really want to just talk about the facts and not so much to sway someone towards, hey, you should take the pill or you shouldn't take the pill. Because when I put up a question box, someone literally said, should would you recommend the pill and that is not what we're here for it is to and i think that you would agree Izzy, it's you know to empower women with knowledge so that they can ultimately make an informed decision about what is the best and the right decision for them because i feel like in the health and fitness space it's become this the pill is bad always it ruins everything don't ever take it and i feel like that's a very dangerous place to be stepping into so i wanted to bring someone such as you here who could provide the facts so that women feel empowered to make an informed decision yeah i shared and i couldn't have said it better myself and i think i really want to highlight that i don't think people don't mean well when they're saying the pill is bad they're being taught what they've learned by someone with a small qualification. So of course that is the education that they're going to provide. And I think in part, the medical system has a lot to answer for in terms of why people are not trusting doctors or are pushing away, or they're, you know, they're coming in with problems that should take an hour or two to discuss, but they're getting a 15 minute appointment. So I don't think doctors are bad, but I understand why some people have bad relationships or feelings about the healthcare system and I also think the you know 23 year old trainer that's the hormone women's health expert I don't think she's bad either by telling everyone the pill is bad um, and so I, I want to highlight that and you know I, I might come across a little bit uh, cynical or whatever in the chat but it's also because you know like you said I'm having studying for 15 years and then to be told like you're wrong this is bad and I see the impacts of my patients some people that really should have been on the pill for PCOS, for endometrial protection, which we'll talk about. And they mm. were too scared. And then they got endometrial cancer and they've had to have a hysterectomy. So I'm like, I know, you know, I've had patients that their chance of ever carrying a child are gone because they were too scared to take the pill. And so that's heartbreaking. But yeah, I think um, there's a lot of fear and making very big statements as if it's suitable for everyone. And mm -hmm. I say there's no such thing as a good or bad medication. You know, chemotherapy for cancer is pretty fucking great if it saves your life. But mm -hmm. would we go and give it to everyone? Of course not. And so it's all about the individual in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So let's let's kind of jump into, you know, talking about contraception because, you know, the contraception is a very wide terminology. But let's talk about more so um 
you know, the oral contraceptive pill and then maybe we have an opportunity to go into things like the marina. I'd specifically like to talk about, you know, the depot injection, which there are some really important areas that women should know about this particular type of contraception. But would you agree and am I right in saying that probably the main form of contraception being taken by women today is the OCP, so the oral contraceptive pill? Yes, and it's also the most studied in athletes and non-athletes. So I think if we think about contraception, it's good to kind of break it down into some big groups. And I think about ovulation inhibiting um, and then non-ovulation inhibiting. So the types of contraception that inhibit ovulation, so you're not releasing an egg, are the pill, the implanon, and the, you know, the depot injection. And when we ovulate is when we produce estrogen. Um, because our follicles develop each month and those developing follicles make estrogen and then they release the egg, the egg's released and then we make estrogen and progesterone. So when we think about ovulation inhibiting contraception, you know, I'm really thinking about what is going on with someone's estrogen because that's important, especially for athletes uh, mm. or people with low bone density. Um, when we think about the ovulation inhibiting, I then break it down into which ones are then giving us extra estrogen to make up for the fact um, that we're not making it ourselves, which is the combined oral contraceptive pill. Uh, there's also, you know, some other ones that aren't really used very much in Australia, um, but, you know, really it's the combined oral contraceptive pill rather than the Nova Ring or the, the patch, which you can get overseas. Um, and then we've got the Implanon and the Depo injection, which inhibit ovulation and don't, they're just progestogens. But how about I quickly explain a little bit about the menstrual cycle and the two main hormones and then how the contraceptives work. Is that okay? Absolutely. <laughs> so um, we have our two main female hormones, estrogen, uh, and that gives us our kind of, fem you know, female characteristics, you know, breast development, our hips broaden, and it's good for lots of different things in our health. It protects our bone health. It's an anabolic hormone. It helps muscle growth, muscle tissue recovery. It also increases growth hormone. Um and it's protective for cardiovascular disease. It's helpful for elasticity, not only just in our tendons, but also in our blood vessels. It also helps prevent um, type 2 diabetes and gaining weight around the middle. I love estrogen. Estrogen is the best. It gets a bad rap. And, you know, female hormones, we get a bad time in general, but estrogen is great. Um, then we have progesterone, progesterone, which is the other female hormone, which is released after ovulation and its main purpose is to help with a pregnancy occurring and it prevents um, growth of our of our womb of our endometrium and this is really important to think about especially for PCOS and sometimes why people need to go on the pill because if you have estrogen without progesterone you're not ovulating you're at risk of getting the the endometrium of the womb um, growing excessively and it becomes what we call hyperplasia which can lead to endometrial cancer and we see in you know obesity for example where people make more estrogen they're at an increased risk of endometrial cancer um, and so that's you know one thing with estrogen that it can cause you know it does cause um, growth of hormone sensitive cancers then um, so with, we've got, you know, estrogen at the start of the cycle, we ovulate, we've got estrogen, progesterone at the second half of the cycle. Then we have synthetic hormones, 
which um, for progesterone, we call them progestogens, and there's lots of different types, and we can talk about them um, because contraceptions, you know, all contain a progestogen. And um, some of them can act a little bit like uh, androgens because testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, um, they all have a really similar structure, which means they can act on, you know, sometimes more than one receptors. Hormones work by traveling through the bloodstream and then acting on a receptor on a cell. So you might have a, you might take some progestogen through a combined oral contraceptive tablet, but it also will act on the testosterone receptor. Or conversely, um, you can have ones that might, you know, block a receptor as well. Um, and there's also uh, quite important is their impact on, um, it's really, it's important because it was really marketed. Some pills, Yaz, for example, they contain a type of progestogen which was known to cause, it's a, got a, like a weak diuretic effect because it um, blocks aldosterone. Uh, but that one, you know, and it was really marketed. Everyone wanted to go on Yaz because it, you know, supposedly didn't cause weight gain. And it just had a weak diuretic effect. But, you know, that's important to talk about because it has an increased risk of DVTs. But so when, so that's, we know, so we get, you know, we can take, uh, synthetic hormones, and that's what really contraceptions are. So we'll talk about the combined oral contraceptive pill. So that is a synthetic estrogen and a progestogen. There's lots of different formulations and different strengths and doses, and we use different ones depending on, you know, what might the patient, you know, the patient in front of us, how they tolerate it. But essentially that turns off the messages from the brain to the ovaries to make hormones. And so that stops ovulation. It also changes our, you know, um, kind of cervical mucus and makes, you know, sperm less likely to, you know, you know, fertilize an egg and lots of other things. But the main thing, it, you know, it inhibits ovulation. Um, that means that, so, you know, it's an effective contraception. It can work really well. It has other benefits. It stops because our ovaries are our main form and interrupt me at any time. I know I'm just talking along a lot here. So please, if I, if I, if I, um, so when I listen to a podcast, sometimes they just waffle on. I'm like, just get to the bloody point. Be more concise. Um, so let so the benefits of, I'm going to talk about the benefits and the cons. How's that of the pill? So, you know, the yeah. benefits. Before you go into that, I have a question or yeah. more, um, I guess, something I want to clarify. So one of the things that you mentioned was, and we kind of briefly skimmed over it, was the fact um, that women with PCOS that have, you know, in ovulatory PCOS can have a buildup of the endometrium, which puts them at greater risk of um, cancer. Is that right? Yeah, endometrial cancer. So in PCOS, you actually have, we talk about having elevated androgen, so testosterone, but there's also elevated levels of estrogen as well. And that's a whole nother podcast topic on itself. It's quite complicated. Um, but you have elevated net hormones. And that means you have the estrogen and it's stimulating the endometrium, the lining of the womb to grow and blood vessels to grow. However, if you don't have that progesterone to thin it out and prevent excessive growth and then have a period, that growth can continue and you can get endometrial cancer. And that's why, you know, another topic, but HRT or even the pill, for example, they always have to contain a progestogen to prevent that, you know, excessive growth of the endometrium. And people can get cancer. I've had patients with hysterectomies from PCOS that wasn't treated properly. Yeah. And that's why I kind of just wanted to you know, it's um I think it's an easy topic to skim over, but it's one of the common objections I see when it comes to the contraceptive pill, especially for women with PCOS, because it's, you know, and I, 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 get, I get the thought, it's like, 
it's masking the symptoms and and yes like there are and, and i'm sure that you will you'll you'll correct me if this isn't right izzy but it's like yes there can be problems with putting a woman on oral contraceptives or contraceptives too early in their life where then they come off contraception they didn't know that they had PCOS, had PCOS or fertility problems yeah yeah however it's like when that's kind of clumped into the same basket is all women with PCOS should never be recommended the oral contraceptive pill. I just really wanted to highlight that because I think people don't appreciate that for some women, say with PCOS, the oral contraceptive pill or contraceptive, like hormonal contraceptives, can play a role in risk mitigation for something that they're at higher risk of. And that's where doctors are weighing up the pros and cons and the benefits and the potential risks and so i, I yeah i wanted to highlight no, that i think it's bit. really good to talk about and unfortunately i don't think it's explained well enough during doctor's appointments purely due to time yes. um and you're right if you go the pill does not treat pcos okay it does not treat the underlying cause but it does treat some of the symptoms and if i have a patient who's got terrible acne they're getting a lot of body hair they're getting i can see the thickness of their endometrium is growing yes that's a band-aid it's not treating the underlying cause but it's a bloody great band-aid okay mm -hmm. so that's really going to have a good impact on the patient's quality of life due to some of the hyperandrogenism symptoms and i'm still going to do the lifestyle management i'm still going to say i want you exercising more um, improving your insulin sensitivity and let's Let's go off the pill then in six to 12 months. Um, and I know you've had that endometrium thinned. So, and that's the thing, I think there's this kind of um, dogmatic view of lifestyle versus medicines. You know, you shouldn't go on the pill in PCOS because, you know, you can treat it with lifestyle, which is true for a lot of people, but not all people. And I think what you said is really good about um, fertility because I still hear the pill being told that it impacts your fertility. And we have so many good studies that have looked at cohorts with women on the pill, women not on the pill, they go off and they fall pregnant at the same rate. So it does not actually impact your underlying fertility in any way. There was even some data showing it might potentially have a positive impact, but that wasn't statistically significant. So don't hold me to that, but it will mask the underlying symptoms. And you and that's it, it's really sad. We've got women who've gone on the pill when they're 17 and then they haven't gone off it until they're 33 and they're wanting to have a baby and they realize they're not ovulating. They're not having regular cycles. And although I'm not a massive fan of, you know, regular pill breaks, I don't think it's a bad idea if someone's in their mid to late 20s and they're thinking they want to have a baby in a few years, that they do go off and see, am I ovulating? Do I have reds? Do I have functional hypothalamic amenorrhea? You know, these other things that the pill can mask because it can mask things. And it is really important to be aware of that. But it doesn't mean the pill, therefore, should never be used. Um mm -hmm. So we talked about, so where was I up to? I was talking about the pill and the, the benefits, the cons and the, the pros and the cons. And I think this is really good to talk about because we always see all of the bad things that the pill does, which it does, you know, there are risks. It increases your risk of DVTs. If you get migraines with aura, it can increase the risk of them. For some people, it impacts their mental health and makes them feel really crappy. Although often I've got a theory, it's because they get a new boyfriend that's a piece of shit and makes them anxious. Uh, <laughs> certainly not me denying that some women do really generally not go well from a mental health perspective with the pill. But I do say also, are you in a new relationship? And is that relationship making you stressed, you know, anxious or stressed? Um, 
And other concerns with the pill, we know uh, from a bone density perspective, if adolescents go on the pill, it can slightly decrease their peak bone density. Whereas if women go on the pill at perimenopause, and I often put women on the pill if they don't have any um, you know, reasons not to, which we call contraindications. Uh, and that actually is associated with a slightly increased um, improved bone density. But in adolescence, there is, you know, a slight decrease bone density. Um, but the positive things about the pill, so we know it's associated with decreased total cancers. Um, there was a really big, so, you know, ovarian cancer is decreased by 40 to 50% and that's lifelong. So if you've been on the pill for five years, your lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is decreased by 50% or 40 to 50%. We can't screen for ovarian cancer. It's not like breast cancer that we do a mammogram every couple of years and can pick up an early one. The majority of people with ovarian cancer, it's not diagnosed until it's stage three. Uh, and the five-year survival for ovarian cancer is pretty terrible. So, you know, I am not on the pill. I'm an athlete myself, but I have purposely stayed on the pill previously to try and get that five continuous years to decrease that risk. And that's all about every time we ovulate, there's an increased risk of cell mutations at the ovary. So that's that's why. It's also associated with lower rates of uterine cancer and bowel cancer. And we know it's associated with decreased total net cancers. And there was a really big British cohort study looking at women from, I think, the 1960s to the early 2000s. And we saw that women who had been on the pill had had a decreased uh, overall mortality risk. So the women on the pill were slightly less likely to die over that 40-year period. And that was just for anyone who'd ever been on the pill. You know, we can't really say association versus causation, but I think it highlights that we hear so many terrible things about the pill and from a long-term health perspective, there actually are, you know, quite a few benefits. To me, the main one is the decreased ovarian cancer risk, which I think about. For some people, it can be really useful preventing uh, iron deficiency from heavy periods. And, you know, it's funny, I'm vegetarian, almost vegan. I've never had any problems with iron deficiency. And I have friends mm -hmm. that live off steaks and are iron deficient. So I think we talk a lot about treating iron deficiency as with dietary and food, but some people just do not absorb iron well, unfortunately. So it can be mm -hmm. useful. And the other one that I sometimes will put patients on the pill for is for their mood, which sounds counterintuitive. But some women who get really bad PMS and, you know, what we call premenstrual mm -hmm. dysthymic disorder, the pill can be a lifesaver. And I say literally a lifesaver. You know, people can be suicidal, existential crisis from PM, you know, premenstrual dysthymic disorder. So there are benefits in that way. And this is why um, it's all about the individual in front of you. The, the risk we hear a lot about with the pill is breast cancer. And mm -hmm. we do know that you have an increased risk of breast cancer by about 20%. But 20% risk increase when you're 25, your risk of breast cancer is, you know, less than one in 10,000. So mm -hmm. you're, that's where it's really important to understand relative versus absolute risk. So mm -hmm. if your risk of breast cancer is 0 0.0001 and you make it 0 0.00012, your risk is still really low. Um, and we know, you know, we talk about if there's 10,000 women on the pill or 10,000 not, one extra woman on the pill would, you know, probably get the breast cancer. They're generally hormone sensitive cancers that are quite small and quite treatable. And it's incredibly rare in a younger age group. If you had a really strong family history of breast cancer, that would be different. And um, and so that's, I think I'm rambling here, but it's all about, you can see, it's about the individual. If someone gets terrible migraines, you are not going to put them on the pill. If someone, you know, has terrible postmenstrual dysthymic disorder and PCOS, maybe the pill would be right for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned at the start of the podcast, Izzy, was um, 
Yes, and I, I have a question, and I don't, I don't actually know the answer to this, but I know that some of the limitations that women have with contraception is that it causes weight gain or it can cause weight gain, and we can go into the discussion about fat gain being a different, different to weight gain, and that weight gain fluid is and fluid shifts and all those things, which is not fat accumulation. However, um, that could be a different top, a podcast in itself, but. A question I have for you is you mentioned that Yaz in particular has that increased risk of DVT. So for those wondering what the hell DVT means, it's deep vein thrombosis. So it's clots that you can accumulate in your legs, which if they travel to your lungs can um, form into what we call pulmonary embolism. And it's never a good day for anybody who has a pulmonary embolism. So my question is, when you mentioned that Yaz kind of increased in popularity because it was one of those ones that potentially doesn't um, come with that weight gain, did we see an increase in DVTs that you know of? And is that where that kind of stigma around the pill causes blood clots came from? So all oral contraceptive pills do slightly increase the risk of DVTs and it's because they go through the liver and they increase the clotting proteins in the liver. So, and that is true for all DVTs. Again, a little bit like breast cancer, incredibly, incredibly rare. So the absolute risk is very small. But to me, this is more of a relevant consideration than the breast cancer risk because DVTs are a little bit more common and some people can have a slight genetic mutation that increases their risk of DVT. So for me, when I think about the, the pill and DVT risk, it's usually if the pill is added to someone who's already at high risk and you won't know that you're high risk unless you've had one previously. But I think about, and you know, nursing and you've been an ICU nurse, you'll know, you know, factor five latent deficiency is a common genetic condition that can slightly increase risk of someone's DVTs. The majority of people that have this condition won't get a DVT, but that risk is slightly increased. Maybe then having them on a pill, which uh, increases DVT risk, especially ones like Yaz, and that's due to, we think, the type of progestogen in it, um, which is the drosperinone, and then maybe put them on a long flight and they have a few drinks and so they're not moving around. And so yep. it's generally a few risks combined will you know, cause that DVT. Um, yep. If someone has ever had a DVT in the past, especially one that just happened spontaneously, we would never have someone on um, the combined oral contraceptive pill. If you had a super strong family history, it would then be, you know, a very, you know, maybe a discussion that you'd really talk about the risks and benefits and how important that pill was. There's other types of contraception we'd recommend, like the IUD or something like that. But they do increase risk of DVTs, and that is something to think about, especially mm -hmm. if you have those other risk factors. But yeah. again, incredibly rare, and I've had, you know, friends or patients with, you know, really bad endometriosis that... That, you know, and endometriosis is a very complex topic. I'm not an expert in it, but her specialist wanted her to go on the pill and she was petrified because she thought she'd take one tablet and, you know, get a clot in her lung. And the poor thing finally did go on the pill and her quality of life has improved significantly. And I think that's where, you know, understanding just because something increases your risk, that risk is, you know, might be really, 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 really low. And if you're in disabling pain that you can't get out of bed from your endometriosis, that is also going to increase your risk of DVTs, as will pregnancy, which is much, much higher risk of a DVT of pregnancy in the postpartum period. So again, I'm going to keep going on about it, but it's all about the patient in front of you and what's appropriate for them. Yeah, for sure. And I want to kind of steer the conversation toward, um, you know, we've kind of touched on the OCP. Um, now, other 
common, I guess, contracept forms of contraception that I notice in my uh, clients, because I only work with women, um, is the IUD marina and the depot. But one of the things that I feel like we've, we've spoken about some of the benefits um, that we can see with oral contraception. One of the limitations that I see, and I, I understand why there's that mistrust with the medical system is particularly when it comes to the injection, right? And I've had women come to me and say, yeah, so I take this and I've been on, you know, I've had the depot injection for the last six years. And for me, I'm like, okay, let's Oh my talk goodness. Um, let's no, talk that, that blows this. my mind that that is happening. And also, I just want to also before, let's, go, let's talk about prosthetic performance before we finish the podcast, but let's talk about the depot right now. So I'm not a big fan of progesterone-only contraceptions because they lower your estrogen significantly. And estrogen is great. We talked about bone health, recovery, mental health, heart disease, diabetes. The Depot specifically, I'm amazed that it's even being used much. It's more, it seems to be prescribed in the UK quite a bit and I occasionally have a patient with it now. Um, but it completely inhibits ovulation and turns off all estrogen production so we know people on the depot their bone density will decrease that's not a risk that's a, it will essentially decrease and people should not be on the depot for more than a couple of years and it's really only should be used when there are no other suitable options mm. and so it is not a long-term contraception and i've had patients that i'm sure that you know their depot injection did really de contribute to their low bone density um and what's interesting, the other progesterone-only contraception is the Implanon, and that's the little rod that goes in the arm. I'm also not a big fan of that one because it lowers it lowers estrogen, um, and it's been the contraception with the highest association with having a negative impact on mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the data on mental health and contraception, it, it's really hard to get good data. And the best data we have is from Denmark and because those Scandinavian countries have really good cohorts, um, like data banks, you know, from when people are very young, just everyone has, you know, data collected. And they saw with people on the combined oral contraceptive pill, there was a 1% increased risk of being diagnosed with depression and around a 2% increased risk with the Implanon. <sighs> But you can have negative mental health impacts without having a formal diagnosis of depression. And that's mm. why I say it's about the individual and them being aware. But the Implanon does have, you know, mood side effects. It's a really high dose of progesterone that is systemically absorbed. I would really only recommend it to young girls that I know they are going to be bad at taking the pill and I just want them to, you know, if they really need an effective contraception. So you should be on the depot in the long term. It's if nothing else is suitable. It has negative impacts on your bone density. The Implanon, the data about bone density is still a little bit unclear. It doesn't seem to have a negative impact on, doesn't seem to be associated with increased fracture risk, but we don't have long-term data and athlete population is different to the rest of the population. You know, I deal with runners. So anything that is going to potentially have a negative impact on their bone health, I really consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's, 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 let's switch gears and talk about performance um because that's obviously your bread and butter it's my bread and butter um it's what we do well i do day in day out at least and and I, you've got like it's my favorite thing i wish i'd been an exercise scientist i think i'm i'm picking <laughs> phd topics now I'm like oh god damn it i wish i was a performance exercise scientist why do i have to be a doctor no, that's well, great. You know, it's like just go back to uni and study for another nine years <laughs> to be <become> a specialty <laughs> um but um 
you know, I think that we're getting better at understanding the effects that contraception has on athletes. But, you know, you deal a lot with runners. However, uh, I deal a lot with people who are more, I guess, strength athletes or they have aesthetic based sort of goals that they have. So bodybuilding, things like that. And the issue and, and please correct me if I'm wrong um, with the athlete population, whether that's runners or bodybuilders, is that there's an increased risk of uh, red, so relative energy deficiency in sport, right? Or some people, and and I, I don't know, am I wrong in, in understanding it like this, Izzy, that reds and HA, is it one and the same or is it Not really. I guess uh, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea essentially is a fancy word for losing your periods because you're, you know, overtraining, not fueling correctly, is one aspect of REDS. So, mm. for example, and REDS is a whole body syndrome where you have multiple organ systems affected that are not functioning optimally as they are not getting the required energy and also carbohydrates for, you know, meeting their fueling needs and I say carbohydrates because there is increasing evidence that it's carbohydrate availability which is a big factor in those complications of reds especially from reproductive health and bone health mm-hmm. so to summarize you know reds we see you know from an immunological perspective increased risk of coughs colds you know cognitively our you know things like reaction time concentration ability to do tasks are impacted Uh, it increases cortisol which can have a negative effect on bone health as well Um, our growth hormone we get you know growth hormone resistance so igf1 is lower so it's really a whole you know our thyroid function is decreased we feel cold so it's a whole body syndrome and then that functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is one aspect of that and the pill can uh, mask that as we talked about before um you know because a, like a period is a good marker of health if you're ovulating monthly you know you know that you're fueling well you're recovering well your stress is slightly okay although i feel like i'm really bloody stressed all the time and my period is really regular after all um so i don't know how we got onto this yes fha is one part of reds yes yeah okay so a lot of women that probably not so much in the strength sort of population or maybe even bodybuilding or aesthetic based populations but i know that people who do uh, and this might be a generalization but say gymnastics or they are runners or you know endurance based athletes um, i know particularly it's quite high in gymnastics where you know women they wear for their their sport they're wearing leotards and and it's like nobody wants to be in a leotard at that time of the month right so one of the things that they do is they they go on contraception so if they're not if someone's not regularly getting a period and just to clarify um and you'll correct me if i'm wrong but you're not when you have a bleed on on oral contraception you're not actually ovulating it's not a bleed post ovulation it's you can't you, you can't use it as a marker of health essentially the synthetic estrogen that you're taking through a tablet tablet is stimulating the endometrium you have the progesterone and then you take it away and then the bleed happens i don't really recommend a withdrawal bleed anyway because it decreases the efficacy of the contraception and i think women generally need to hold on to their iron i only recommend it once every three to six months because most women end up getting spotting if they just you know, never have a break. So yeah, 
it is it can mask losing your period and that's why I'm not on the pill. I quite like being on the pill, you know, period's annoying and I don't have any side effects from it. Um I've got, you know, my mood is fine, all of those things, but I am training quite a lot at the moment with running, so I want to know if I'm getting that period and that, you know, like I said that your marker of health and you can't know if you're on the pill that's i do quite like the uh marina in athletes because you know a lot of athletes still will you know have a period and they're still ovulating and if you know your body really well you can actually recognize when you're ovulating even if you don't have a period because it does thin out the bleeding the endometrium with the marina um but a lot of athletes especially in the elite space are now having a marina because they're they're still making good levels of estrogen and they're not having heaps of synthetic progesterone on board and so it seems to have kind of low side effects they've still got the estrogen you know it has to be inserted which is a bit of a pain literally um but you know for most people it's okay so sorry, we got a bit off. Uh, we got a bit off track about performance. We'll get back yeah, to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm giggling when you said um, a bit of pain because I remember many years ago I got the copper IUD and they said, uh, "Oh, do you want? Do you want? You know, like a local?" And I was like, "No, nah, it's fine. This is pre babies, pre babies." Oh my goodness, that was not fun. I should have taken. <laughs> Oh my god! Some people get done with general anaesthetic. You are like hard ass. Don't even give me any local. Like whack it no. in. Oh my god! It's crazy. Not a good time. But you kind of bet me to my to my question there, um, Izzy. So we kind of didn't go off path. But if women are particularly, um, you know, in that performance sort of base field or how whatever that looks like for them, gymnastics, running, bodybuilding, strength sports, that something like the marina might be an option for them because. Um, they're still getting those, you know, they still have those peaks and troughs throughout their cycle. They're, they're not not having those. So yeah, they're not that- flatlining their hormones. Yeah. Well, I think good to understand about the potential performance impacts of the combined oral contraceptive pill. Mm-hmm. And we know the combined oral contraceptive pill, so it is stopping your natural estrogen production. You do have a synthetic estrogen. There are newer pills which do have your body's natural estrogen, like a 17-beta estradiol. So I'm getting a bit complex now, but it's called Zoli. And that is the body's, you know, same molecular structure as your natural estrogen. So if someone, an athlete is going to go on the pill, that's the one I probably recommend. Um, But the pill, you're also decreasing your growth hormone. Our natural estrogen actually increases growth hormone. But when we take the pill, its impact on our liver decreases what's called IGF-1. And IGF-1 is like the second flow and effective growth hormone that does all of its actions. And I actually use the pill for females who have the condition of excess IGF-1, we might put them on the pill to lower it. So, you know, and we know growth hormone is really important for muscle strength you know tissue recovery so from the pill that can you know you're decreasing your growth hormone your Mm -hmm. igf1 uh you're losing the anabolic you know estrogen effects and there are studies that have shown a slight negative impact very small but consistent you know results of decreasing our vo2 max which is you know more important for you know athletes and it's only a small amount so it would really only be relevant to you know the elites that are looking at those one percenters Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 1% gains. Uh, from a strength perspective, there is some data. It's quite mixed, actually, of whether the pill has a negative impact on power and strength. I'm sure you're up to date with that data. Um, and some kind of mixed results. It's all relatively small. But, you know, I think we can say in general, the pill is probably not going to be benefit. It's not, it's probably 
definitely not beneficial for a performance. It might mm -hmm. be neutral, but it's definitely not beneficial. And if anything, it might have a small negative impact on performance. And mm -hmm. then, you know, obviously if you're under fueling and you don't have that loss of period, that is an issue. But there are other signs to look out for apart from just the periods with reds if you are on the pill. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah, it's it's interesting and I'd, I'd love to hear your stance on this. It's like you've spoken a lot about uh, estrogen and how that affects multiple areas but would you agree that we probably have less data on or known um effects of progesterone in terms of performance like we've got a lot on testosterone we've got a little bit less on on estrogen but then when it comes to progesterone would you agree that there's just not as much like i wouldn't really um uh you can't really talk about progesterone without having estrogen and when I talk about I guess progesterone we don't have as much of an understanding of what progesterone does in the body beyond looking after the reproductive system if someone has had a hysterectomy I and they need HRT because let's say they had cancer in their 30s I'm going to give them HRT I'm just going to give them estrogen there's some people that think they should also have a uh, progesterone treatment but I would not really you know, there's not evidence, it's not in the guidelines. Synthetic progesterones can make people feel kind of crap. Um, and, you know, there's just really not that much data of benefit. Um, but there are some people that think, you know, that progesterone is also important and that could maybe be part of the perimenopause phase. In terms of on performance and progesterone, we're kind of getting off contraception, but in our natural cycling women where the second half of the cycle is when you've got progesterone. Some athletes feel that their performance is negatively impacted during this phase and progesterone increases your core body temperature makes you hungry you know it increases your metabolic rate i'm sure you've talked about with this before um and it can make you feel tired and a lot of athletes especially in those few days before their period where their progesterone is really high we do have some data that's showing you know performance is negatively impacted um but you know we know that there's just not that much data and good quality research in this women's health space and athletes uh, you know, there was there's a famous tagline of, you know, only 6% of, you know, sports science research was done on women alone from, mm. you know, this 10-year period. And menstrual cycles have been blamed. And we are getting more research, but it's hard. I think, you know, anyone who's actually done research is, it's not as easy as just saying, hey, I'm going to do some research. It's so much money, ethics applications, you know, and it's a really long process to do a study of, you know, 50 people for one year. And it's not as simple as just wanting to support women. But, you know, I do think there will be increasing data definitely in the next 10 or 20 years looking at impacts mm. of both contraception and natural cycle on performance. Yeah, 100%. Because if we can if we can determine whether or not truly the menstrual cycle affects performance, it's like if it doesn't, that is something that's really big for women because it's like, well, that, that exclusion from a lot of the research that we have is automatically like, well, that's not really something that we have to worry about. So why are we excluding women from these studies? So I'm very excited to see what kind of comes from the research um, next. I would say... And from what I see in my athletes and my patients, and I have a lot of female athlete patients, 
it's going to be individual. And I say people go through puberty, you know, people have different puberties, they have different pregnancies, they do have different menopauses. So why on earth would they not have their menstrual cycle impact them differently? And I yeah. think we like to, especially in this world of social media where we make our pretty posts and we give people information, we want to put everyone into the same box. Nuance does not get headlines or follows. Um, but I, <laughs> I think in reality, there is going to be a lot of individual variation because we all have, when we think about hormones work, we have hormones and then we have receptors. So people can have different concentration of receptors at different parts of their body, in their brains, their bones, their muscles. Then the actual impact of those hormones can be slightly different. We all have mild genetic mutations that impact how our hormones you know, and that, you know, the receptors and everything works. So there's going to be individual variation. But I think definitely how I foresee what will happen is that there will be tools for women to learn how to optimise their own performance and we'll have growing evidence of how to do this so that women can then train and, you know, how more of an individual perspective rather than what fits everyone. For sure. So if an, if an athlete wanted um, to have a natural cycle but also still protect herself against unwanted pregnancy because I think and I don't know what your thoughts are, are on this but I think the problem is that when social media and coaches are like don't take contraception it's so bad for you it's like well we're kind of digging into anyway, this actual point is which is you don't want to fall pregnant yes sorry exactly. I don't know if that's what you were going to say but that's yeah. what I just want to scream sometimes I'm like are you going to be responsible when the 21 year old that has no money falls pregnant you know mm. it costs like a thousand, it's so cheap to get a termination of pregnancy and mm. a little bit of accountability for the fact that especially if people are in the states where it's a you know bloody like you it's a it's illegal now to even access a termination some responsibility and accountability and i say and i and i do you know i talk a lot um in this space i say athletes are allowed to like having sex okay you know <laughs> women it's, you know, I think there's a been a, you know, a, a, we're in a generation of sexual empowerment that it's okay to have casual sex. It's okay to like having sex. It's not some chore that you do for your husband as a, you know, thank you for their, you know, I don't yes. know, dedication, you know, that they've chosen you. Like, and yeah. empowering women that it's okay to want to have sex and enjoy sex and contraception, both for preventing pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections is important. Um, but mm -hmm. also being a good athlete is important. So that's, you know, and that's where we need so much more education. You know, Kate Campbell, who's a bloody Olympic swimmer, she did a story in the media a while ago. She was put on the Implanon. And I was like, I would never put an elite athlete on the Implanon. Like, yeah. what on earth? And she's got the IUD. But we just need more education on this topic and uh, people being able to access doctors and people like you that have a particular interest and are qualified and, you know, knowledgeable. But yeah. Your question was, what yeah. was... <laughs> so you don't want to fall pregnant and you want to naturally cycle is that it yeah so what because you know i have i i've genuinely had izzy like people be like oh well contraception is bad for me i want the natural cycle and i'm all for that like if you want your natural hormones i i want that like that's what i want that's what's important to me but they'll be like oh you know you just use the pull out method or you just and it's like well let's talk about the actual effectiveness of how that 
Yeah, I'm not some data on how effective is the withdrawal method, but I think it would be very user dependent. Um, yeah. So, yeah. what they say is, if you know, use condoms. If you don't, if you're like, I'm gonna just use the withdrawal method, use condoms at least in your fertile period, track your mm -hmm. cycle, and I am never going to formally recommend someone does natural tracking track tracking as a form of contraception because there are too many variables. Your menstrual cycle is not the same every month. You know, yes. I had a bit of a, I had a nightmare month last, and I track my cycle. And I'm very in tune with my body, and I know when I ovulate. And I was like, hmm, I haven't ovulated. Something's going on. This is a bit odd. And, you know, I could tell. And then, you know, my period was four days late because I ovulated four days late. And mm -hmm. if just as a little hack for everyone, the first part of your cycle is what varies. The second part of your cycle, the luteal phase, after you've ovulated, that corpus luteum, which is where the egg is released and is making the progesterone, that can only survive for around 14 days. So mm -hmm. that part of your cycle is limited. It will not extend. The first part of your cycle, which is when your brain is sending messages to the ovaries to make estrogen, and then you get that estrogen spike, that's the part that can vary. So then mm. that's why I'm really concerned if people are going, oh, you know, I'm day, I'm day 10, you know, I, I can't fall pregnant after this day or so, or I'm day 14, I must have already ovulated. And mm. it's that part of the cycle that can vary. So I say to people, track your cycle, learn about, you know, you know, cervical mucus. Um, it's, you know, when you ovulate, it's kind of like egg whitey and, you know, if you're really not wanting to use condoms all the time, at least use condoms in that middle part of the cycle when you could fall pregnant. Um, and then also, you know, I'm not a big, I, I think realistically, I don't know anyone who does a basal body temperature and sits down for five minutes every morning and, you know, go through all of that. You know, that's the gold standard of natural tr cycle tracking. The other thing is thinking about an IUD. I think that is a really good form of contraception if you're not wanting to have children for a long time you can put it in there you don't need to worry about it you still have you know you, most people will still have natural you know hormones like estrogen like estrogen production and you would normally still you know a lot of most women still ovulate but if you're yeah, really not wanting any of them i would say really track your cycle know your body and use condoms in that you know fertile period yeah yeah and how how long can sperm survive Sperm can survive around five days, um, mm. and the egg the egg can survive doesn't last long. It's only around twelve to twenty four hours. So, mm. if you you can if you've had so, you know if you've had intercourse and you know there's you know sperm in the female reproductive system, it can last for five days, and that's why you know that's a fertile window. Even though the egg's only there for twelve to twenty four hours, that fertile window is more five six days. And it yeah. can vary month. It can vary month to month. Yeah, and that's. I wanted to highlight that because I've had a lot of people, you know, comment on social media, being like, "You're only fertile for one one day in the cycle." Oh, it's like, mm, yeah, but you're forgetting that sperm lasts for a lot longer than that. Yes. So, yes, while you might ovulate for this period of time, that's also a so consideration. I'm so concerning. Oh my god. <laughs> So I think I think that's my point, Izzy. It's like if you're very well educated in this space of understanding your body and tracking and doing all these things, maybe um, natural cycle tracking is something that works for you. Um, it's something that works, you know, personally for me. But 
Also, there's also the option if you don't want the changes in the hormones that come with the OCP or Implanon, et cetera, there is the option to talk to your doctor about, you know, um, the Merino or the copper IUD, which are, are different, right? Yeah, so the copper IUD is, and so IUD stands for interuterine device. It sits, you know, just in the, cer in the cervix, so inside the endometrium. And it changes, so there's one that's got progestogen in it, so it thins the lining of the endometrium so that, you know, you can't have a an embryo be, you know, attached, you can't fertilise an embryo at the side. Um, and then there's the copper one, which is copper, and that is non-hormonal and it does not have any impact on your ovulation or your hormone production, but it also changes that uh, environment to make, you know, fertilization of an egg and an embryo implanting, you know, impossible. And mm. I, I know some people that are on the copper IUD, the main side effects we worry about is it can cause really heavy bleeding. Some people say it's completely fine. They don't have any problems. There is a slight increased risk of an ectopic pregnancy with the copper IUD, um, mm. which I always say I'm grateful for because my mum had an ectopic pregnancy before she fell pregnant with me and I don't think she would have had a fourth child. So I'm only here due to the failure of the copper IUD, thank God. Um, <laughs> That was, you know, 30-something years ago. But uh, but the yeah. copper IUD, some people who really want a good contraception but do not want any hormones or they're really, you know, sensitive to hormones, um, you know, that's another option. We don't generally recommend it because the bleeding can be a real pain, but for some people it's good. And that's, you know, these are discussions. And if you're going to see your GP, do not just rock up to any GP at the practice who's available this afternoon. Google them, mm. look them up. What are their interests? Do they have an interest in women's health and contraception? And there's lots of doctors that do. Um, mm. You know, this might be a little bit controversial, but, you know, I don't think you can expect to get really great, thorough, personalised medical care with a bulk billing doctor because, unfortunately, the system just does not allow okay. it. And, you know, otherwise doctors are going to earn 30 bucks an hour. And, I, I, you know, by the time they pay their the the clinical the practice fees and that they, they work for themselves they're not getting superannuation holiday pay maternity pay so how can you expect doctors that have you know done 10 years of training to work for 30 40 dollars an hour when they don't get any of those other things as well there's no mat leave or holiday pay so i would i really recommend people get the same gp and get a gp with an interest in what your issues are and accept yeah. that you might need to pay yeah, 100%. And I'm very mindful of time, but I do want to I want to finish on this, Izzy, and I because I really truly love to hear your stance on it. And I think again it comes back to the fact that being a nurse, I under I know what the healthcare system is like and the the pressure that doctors and nurses and allied healthcare professional experience in that and the burnout and how overworked and I wish I could take people and put them in there and be like, mm. just go and see it for a day because I think that there's this um, responsibility placed on general practitioners and doctors oh. to have the answers for absolutely everything. Oh, <laughs> and, sorry. And and we, I, I want to, you know, because I appreciate that doctors are in this authoritative space, but we also need to take responsibility for the way that we source our information and how we make informed decisions. And, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like, what, what are I your... Think you, I th and I think your empathy is really, you know, what is really appreciated and you have such a unique position being in the health and fitness space as also being a, you know, a highly qualified health professional yourself in that more mainstream setting. 
And I agree. I think the expectations on general practitioners are completely unrealistic that they are general practitioners and they are not going to know every single study or every single topic because they're general practitioners. And I do think then there's also the responsibility of the GP to say, hey, I don't know. Um, yes. You know, I don't have this unique specialist knowledge. And I think that is the issue sometimes that I hear stories of people saying, the GP said, that's not true. You know, there's no, there's no, the pill client impact performance or something. And they don't have the back. And this, and I'm not, and I'm not saying, I'm not speaking badly of GPs. They are the yes. complete brunt of the healthcare system. Um, but we do need to realise that your GP is not going to test you for every single thing and know everything about every unique, rare, nuanced, specific part of your condition because they are general. They're also checking babies. They are experts in domestic violence, in depression in elderly people. And that is something to think about. And that's why I say see a GP who has a specific interest in women's health or in athlete health um, and some understanding that especially after COVID, we are completely flat strapped. My clinics are booked out for six months in advance because people, they didn't see the doctor for almost two years for any of these issues. And now we're just having floods of patients and they don't come to the appointment because maybe they're sick or something's come up. And it's like, I'm really sorry, we can't put you in for another six months. And we are overbooking our clinics. We are, you know, shortening appointment time. So it's a hard time being in the public health care system at the moment. We're all pretty burnt out from COVID as well. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, you guys are doing good. Honestly, I tapped out. I was like, I cannot do this. I can't do uh, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm on to that, that, you know, part-time private practice next year. It's the yes. dangling carrot. But I think, uh, Sheridan, you're giving so much back to your community. And I think yeah. there is a really important role for people like you that have the healthcare experience. And, you know, I'm doing something a little bit different, but giving back and using our skills in a different way. And there is multiple ways that we can use our skills. It doesn't always have to be that traditional, you know, yeah, pathway. Sure. So thank you for doing what you're doing too. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so I, I think we'll, we'll end it there, but I want to, I want to extend on what you just said there, Izzy, to that you, you mentioned that you're giving back in another way. So let's talk about Femi and like, let's talk about that because I feel like it's, it's genuinely something that so many women and not just coaches, but women in general can be using to upskill and to understand a little bit more about their physiology and their differences. So tell me about Femi, where can people find you? Where can people find Femi and, and give us everything that you, you want to pass on? Thank you. And I realise this talk has been a little bit unstructured. We've kind of gone from one topic to the next. So I apologise if it was a bit confusing for anyone. Um, it might be one you might need to listen to once, you know, once or twice or write some notes because there was a lot. I think because we're both health professionals, we probably got a little bit too nuanced. Um, <laughs> but FEMI, so I, it is a running organisation that coaches women to the menstrual cycle. And then I am part of the business that's called Femi Theory. And we created a course because we were all runners who had lost our periods from being too thin, not eating enough and overtraining. And we saw our doctors and really didn't get very good care. And mm -hmm. we thought we need to do something about this because athletes are losing out and coaches are not aware, you know, the majority of running coaches are men who are training adolescent girls. So how comfortable are those adolescent girls talking to their coaches about their periods? So we thought we had to do something about it and we've made a course with short modules. You've done the course. We talk in detail about kind of what we talked about today, 
the pill, endometriosis, PCOS, the menstrual cycle, the impact of athletic performance. I go through all the previous data um, on, you know, performance with contraceptions. Oh, gosh, what else? We talk about bone health, pregnancy. That's a great module. Mm -hmm. I really like the pregnancy bone health modules. And we also have a physiotherapist, a dietitian, and a psychologist who touches on other, you know, aspects of that. And I think what's unique about our course is it's not one sports scientist who's trying to pretend to be an endocrinologist, a dietitian, a physio, a coach. We recognise that we all have strengths and knowledge that uh, we can build from each other. And I think that's why our course is really um, unique. And the whole full course is about seven hours, but you can do a shorter course for only about $150. And it comes with like workbooks and, you know, learning things. It's, it's really great. Um, and that one's the shorter course is only about 150 and you can obviously tax deduct it. So I'm really proud of what we've produced. There's nothing else like it. Um, and yeah, if you want to learn more, it'd be a good place to start. For sure. And I actually really loved the menopause and the perimenopause modules. Yeah, they were they were awesome. So yeah, guys, like honestly, I have a lot of coaches continuously ask me where they can sort of learn this information from. And I really, truly, really, really do um, encourage you to check out that course. And otherwise, where do people find you directly? Uh, I publish some information on Instagram is the main uh, where I like to share you know, stuff that I find is interesting and hopefully useful to others. And you can also email me for any um, marketing media stuff. I'm not taking on any uh, individual patients right now, um, but next year I will just be working in private. So please don't email me saying, can you help me? Um, but next year I'll be working in private practice and I will update those details. And I look forward to looking after lots of female athletes. So that's where you can find me. Yeah, that's actually really exciting. I didn't even click them because honestly I have, a lot of clients and a lot of people message me on Instagram and I wish I could like be like go to Izzy go to Izzy but I'm like she's in the public health system and you can't go to Izzy like, you can't there's, there's a six-month wait in the public but 2024 I'm just going to be working in private practice so I'd love to help some people then yes amazing amazing well thank you so much for your time Izzy um it's been much appreciated and guys if you did enjoy this episode then give it a five-star review leave a comment or whatever you want to say on it uh, and do check out Izzy and I hope that you take something away from this. Thanks so Thanks much, Izzy. Sheridan.